You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. We are in Sermon for the final sermon in the Life of a Disciple series. So we started this thing a month ago, and I thought it'd be helpful to just do a quick recap for us all as we jump into this. This is the last one. Let's go back to the first one for a minute. We started this last month, and Ryan Kearns kicked it off by talking about just the what of discipleship. What is a disciple? And the definition that that has sort of undergirded everything else we've been doing for the past month is this. It'll be on the screen for you. It's this, that a disciple is essentially someone who is becoming more like Jesus in all of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Someone becoming more like Jesus in all of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That has been the guiding principle that has helped us understand all the rest of what we are learning uh, in this this series. And then uh, week two happened and we went from the what of discipleship to the how. How are disciples made? Like if that's the goal, if, if the goal is looking more like Jesus over the course of my life and that the Spirit does that in me, how do we get there? How do we get growing and maturing. And what we discovered was that that growth and maturing and real discipleship ha- discipleship happens on the way as we go together that that as we walk alongside others that's God's primary means of discipleship. That um I think we put it this way that week that gospel truths are transferred through relationships. Okay? So there is something to be said for that life on life living together, walking together, experiencing God together in his word, in society, that, that that's how we change. Uh, and that's how disciples are made. And then last week, we talked about worship in the life of a disciple and how worship really is the essence of what a disciple is and does. And the working definition that we got out of the uh, study last week, we were in the book of Philippians, Uh, is this, it'll be on the screen for you too, that worship defined according to scripture is this, a soul filled with God's spirit, bragging on Jesus based on seeing him as the ultimate treasure in all of life. So that's, that's how we are understanding what worship is, that for us to be people whose life is about boasting in and bragging on Jesus and all we say and do and think, we have to have a view of him in our hearts that is lovely and precious and that, sh- that shows him to be truly magnificent and beautiful, all the things that scripture says he is to us. And our hearts have to see that. And before we can do any sort of worshiping, it has to start with a gaze at Christ. And so that is just a, such a fundamental tenet of what uh, life as a disciple is all about. And to round all this out, here we are, that brings us up to this week. And this week, we are talking about mission in the life of a disciple. Mission in the life of a disciple. Because really, how could you not talk about that if you're talking about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be somebody who walks with Jesus? That we have to get into that outward, outside of ourselves component that reaches into the lives of others who who need to know Jesus and don't yet. We have to talk about what that looks like. And so the, the question this morning that's gonna sort of drive all of what we are looking for in the text in Acts is this question, what does living on mission look like in a disciple's life? It's a really simple question that we're going to try to answer. There are very little frills in the sermon. There isn't some sort of catchy hook to this sermon. We are getting in the text of, of Acts chapter 8, and we are asking that question, and we're making observations. 
In fact, we have seven observations this morning from the text that I think are going to be relevant to us. So we're getting sort of puritanical, getting seven points in here. I'm going Rodney Hobbs this morning. So we're going we're gonna to try to do all of that in 40 minutes. So please pray for me because there is, that will literally be a miracle you will witness if that happens. So uh, seven implications of what living on mission means in the life of a disciple. You guys ready? Okay. Uh, number one, living on mission is for you, not just your pastors. Mic drop. Okay. Living on mission is for you, not just your pastors. Okay, so we are looking at mission from the, from the vantage point of Philip in the book of Acts. And Philip is one of those great characters in your Bible who there's just enough taught about him that you really feel like you can kind of get your arms around who this guy is, what God wants us to see in his life, right? There's enough, there's enough there that there's some substance to it, but there's not so much there like in the life of David where you're like, I just can't possibly understand all of the nuance of what God wants to show me in this guy's life. So there's just, it's just a nice little package of uh, what we get to study in this guy's life. And uh, Philip, we meet him in Acts chapter six, actually, verse five. And the Bible says that he was, quote, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Him and a group of six other guys in the church at Jerusalem were appointed by the apostles to help serve some of the widows in that church. So the church is in Jerusalem at the beginning part of Acts. That's like sort of where the hub of Christianity is. And there was some drama happening with some of the uh, widows not getting served properly. And so the apostles said, hey, appoint for yourselves six men of character, of full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit and faithfulness, those sorts of things. Put them uh, in a volunteer position and help them serve. So that's who Philip was. He was a man of character. He was a man of faith and wisdom. But here's what I want us to see. He was by no means a bigwig, right? Or a player on the scene. Like he wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a church planner. He was just a godly dude in the local church of Jerusalem who was asked to volunteer. He was a volunteer at his local church. That's what Philip was, okay? And you just need to see that this morning uh, because it would be really dangerous and foolish for us to read the, the next chapter that we're about to, um, setting Philip on some sort of magical spiritual pedestal. Like somehow he like, you know, if he was an apostle, somehow we, some of us in here might write off that this would apply to us, but it applies to us because he's just like us. He's, he's just one of the guys who goes to this church who they were like, hey, you could serve. Can you serve? That's who this guy was. Okay. And uh, before Philip is in action in chapter 8, uh, we have to deal with something uh, else that happens. There's a very, very big thing that unfolds in uh, the life of the church. One of the, one of the biggest events, really, in the New Testament that's going to sort of set the stage for missions at large, and it happens in chapter 7. We read about the very first martyr in Christianity. His name was Stephen. All right, and you, some of you guys know about him. He was uh, a man, again, full of faith, and he was uh, stoned to death by the Pharisees for essentially calling them a bunch of stiff-necked people. Right? They killed him, and this event starts a chain reaction that eventually leads to most of those disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem leaving Jerusalem and going to the outer regions, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the launching place for missions. And it starts, interestingly enough, with persecution. That's what launched missions in the early church. And, and we arrive on that scene in chapter 8, 
uh, like this. It opens like this. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And uh, we read that Philip was part of that dispersion. That in verse 5, it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them Christ. So there is our intro into Philip. That's, that's our man, a man who is serving in his local church as a volunteer, serving some of the widows in Jerusalem. The dispersion happens, persecution happens, and Philip just goes out with the crew, and he goes out with the gospel in his heart and in his mouth to the area of Samaria. And I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but that was awesome. Um, so that, that's our intro to him. And, and again, this is a guy who was not an apostle. He was not blinded on some road to Damascus like Paul was. Like none of that happened. He was a guy who simply saw his life as something to be spent on telling the world about Jesus. You and I have to see ourselves in this narrative if the rest of this sermon is going to have any relevance for us. Like, do you know what the requirements of life on mission are for a disciple? Here's what they are. They are not that you need to uh, have a degree, right? You don't need to be uh, a pastoral staff member. You don't need to even be ordained by a church. Here's what you need. You need to see the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of King Jesus and treasure that and want others to treasure that too. That's it. Now you're living life on mission. That is all that the Bible is gonna require of you and I. Nothing more and nothing less. And, and, and I just, I really want us to understand that one of the ways that this church dies is when we all begin to think that ministry and missional living is what happens in the pastoral staff and leadership and not what happens here. That, that somehow this is sort of the spectator part of, of the church and that Rodney and Ryan and Jeff and Kevin, those are the guys doing the, the grunt work. No, the Bible makes it clear. We are all disciples of Jesus if we have trusted in him and therefore we are all on mission. Do you see that? Let's not miss that point. Otherwise, the rest of the sermon is just a moot point. It doesn't really have any relevance for us. So let's keep moving. Living on missions is for you, not just your pastors. Number two, living on mission is a lifestyle, not an event. So of course, we all know the story. If you've ever read Acts, we, knew, we remember the story of, of Philip and the eunuch because it's kind of awesome. Uh, he, he runs up next to the eunuch. The eunuch invites him into this chariot. They're talking about spiritual things. The eunuch comes to Christ. They baptize him. Philip gets teleported. Yes, teleportation is real. Philip is teleported to Azotus. I was going to make it one of my points, but it didn't really apply to everybody, so I left it out. But, but it's, we know that story. It's a pretty epic story. But what we forget is the bookends of that really exciting story in the middle is just Philip doing more preaching. That's all he was doing. In, in verse 5, we see him heading to Samaria, right? And he brought the gospel to the Samaritans. And then we get the moment with the chariot and the eunuch. And then right after that, when he's teleported to Azotus, guess what he's doing? He's going through all the towns and he's preaching to them the gospel until he came to Caesarea. That's what the text says. All that we really know about Philip is the beginning, the middle, and the end of his ministry were just him telling others, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And you know, it's so interesting for me. I remember being in college and, 
And uh, hearing stories of, of guys and gals who were, I went to A&M and, and a, lot of, uh, a lot of folks there, it, I mean, it's almost virtually a Christian university. So many Christians go to this school and there's a lot of chatter about living on mission and like uh, really what the conversation was, was I can't wait to go to this place or that place and become a missionary there. Like God's calling me to Syria or God's calling me to Afghanistan or God's calling me to China and I'm going to go preach the gospel. And they're super jazzed about that. And that's great. But I remember hearing that from their mouth and going, yeah, but I've never seen you preach the gospel like at College Station. So quick, quick question. What's easier? You preaching the gospel to an 18 year old college kid or you preaching to a member of ISIS in Syria. I'm just curious, right? And the point is this. In some of us, when we think mission, we think mission. Like, I go over there and I do missions. But the point is, if you are not living missionally now, proclaiming the gospel now, you're not gonna just flip a switch and do it then. It has to start now, right? It has to start now, be infused into all of your life before it's ever going to carry over into Afghanistan. Do you see that? We need to see missions as a lifestyle, not an event. Uh, what does this mean? Does this mean, Jimmy, that you're asking me to, um, now I got to be a Vanja man, right? That missions is like my whole life, and so I, I'm a Vanja man. I've got the superpower of like losing all my friends because I'm handing out gospel tracts all the time. Like, is that, is that what living missionally means? No. Um, nobody likes that guy. I get it. That's not, that's not what this means. But what it does mean is that we would have eyes to see that the gospel has something to say about all of life. And therefore, it can be infused into so many of our day-to-day -day conversations. If all you think about the gospel is it's this bit of data that sits over here in conversion town, right? And, and that only lost people need it. Then yeah, it's gonna feel very much like it's not a lifestyle, it's an event. I shared the gospel with that guy or that girl, that sort of thing. But when you realize, like Tim Keller says, that the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z of Christianity. It's the whole thing. Then you begin to realize that the gospel has something to say, even about how we raise our kids. It has something to say when our friend or our wife miscarries. It has something to say to the pornography addicts and the alcoholics. It exposes self-righteousness and moral people. It strengthens the faith of the struggler. The gospel has something to say about everything. And therefore, it can go everywhere, and it can be really a part of all of our conversations. It should be how we breathe. We breathe the gospel, so much so that Jesus, when he talks about living missionally, he talks about it like an identity, not like an event. Remember the beginning of Acts chapter 1? Before Jesus goes up to heaven, he's with his disciples, and he says, you will be my witnesses to Ju Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? What does he not say? He doesn't say, you will go witnessing, right? He says, you will be my witnesses. That for Jesus, when Jesus thinks about a missional life, he's saying it would be more accurate for you to think about it as an identity than an activity. That's how we need to become, that's how we need to be thinking about what missional living is. That it's not just a series of events we do, but it is what we are. You see that? That's number two. Number three, living on mission means warring against prejudice. Now, how did I get that from the text? Well, let's look at verses four and five. 
Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So that was after the persecution hit Jerusalem. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Now it is easy to blow past this, right? As we're, we're trying to get to the chariot scene. But stop and don't miss this. If you're a first century Jew and you're hearing this, you would be completely offended by that news. Shocked, baffled. Why? Because Philip didn't just go to any place. He went to Samaria. He went to visit the Samaritans. Well, who are the Samaritans? Well, the Samaritans are those people who are despised by the Jews. They were hated by the Jews. For the Jews, a Samaritan was an ethnic mutt. They were a mixture of Jewish blood and descent, and they were a mixture of Gentile blood and descent. Because in 722, when the Assyrians came down and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they intermingled with the Jews, and Samaria is sort of the byproduct of that conquering. So that, like, the Samaritans didn't really have that cultural identity that the Jews have, and the Jews despised them for that. They were, they were half-bloods to them. And, and so when you're reading this as a, as a first-century person, it would shock you to read, oh yeah, and Philip, he went from Samaria down to, uh, he went from Jerusalem down to Samaria and preached the gospel of them. That would be utterly shocking for you. And it, and it needs to have that effect on us. In fact, the whole point of the book of Acts, in some respect, is to say to the Jewish population, the barrier is gone, the dividing wall is down, Jew and Gentile all get the same Christ. That's, that's the point of the book of Acts, largely speaking. And that's what he's trying to communicate here to those readers. But I don't want us to miss the point either because I think there's something for us here as well. I think one of the questions this text is asking of us is, do we see the love of God as being for everyone? Or just for that group of people that we feel super comfortable around? Like, do most of your conversations about the gospel mostly happen within your socioeconomic class or in front of people who have the same skin color as you? Or let me go a little further. When was the last time you had somebody of another ethnicity across the dinner table from you? Or how many times are you so quick to find the other route to work so you can avoid that part of town that's got those homeless people asking for things, looking for things from you? If we're honest, prejudice runs deep down in so many of our veins. And part of what living missionally means is kicking against that and saying, this precious news of this precious God is for everybody. My neighbor is everybody. I extend it to everybody and everybody is welcome to drink from this fountain. Amen? Yes. Living on mission means warring against prejudice. Number four. Living on mission means chasing Jesus, not impact. Ooh, I like this one. I like this one. Okay. Living on mission means chasing Jesus, not impact. Look at Acts 8.26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, in my opinion... This is probably number three or four on the list for me of one of the hardest commands that God ever gave a person in scripture, which is a really big statement because God asked Abraham to kill his son and all other sorts of crazy things. So why would I feel that strongly about this? Well, I feel 
like this is such a big ask of God because of what happened prior to this moment. Go back to verses 6 and 8 and just read with me what happened once Philip rolled into Samaria. What happened when he started opening his mouth to preach the gospel? Let's look at verse 6. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And they heard him, and they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. That's what's happening when Philip rolled up in Samaria. Like, he starts talking about Jesus and it says the whole town, like in one accord, just sat down and was like, what do you got, man? I want to hear about it. And then he started talking to those demons that were possessing people and they were like, I'm out of here. I'm gone. And then he started talking to paralytic folks and they were like, let's go. Let's dance. Let's have a praise party. And everybody was going crazy. And they were, they were, they were full of joy, the text says, full of joy. Like, I can't imagine a better place to be in that moment. If I'm Philip, I'm, I'm not pitching a tent. I'm building like a, like a three-story brick house. I'm like, this is the center of my universe from now on. This is like great awakening revival happening in, in the city of Samaria, and I want to be a part of it, right? And into all of that amazing, God-glorifying beauty that's happening there, God's like, all right, let's go. Time to get out. Next place. That's what, that's what the Spirit of God says to Philip. And I'm just, you know, if, if I'm Philip's PR guy, I'm like, bro, you got a good thing going here. Like, stick around, man. This is, you know, this, this could go well for you. I'm thinking Apostle Paul, maybe. He'd be next Peter. Like, let's see. Let's see who's the rock of the church, right? Like, that's, that, that's what I'm thinking if I'm Philip. I'm glad I'm not Philip, right? But if I'm Philip, that's going to be the temptation for me. And man, I love Philip's heart because it says he goes, he went, he left that. That doesn't make any sense to us, does it? It's really hard to make sense of that if we're honest. And here's why. I think that if we're honest, when we think about ministry and living missionally, we think that it's mostly about doing great things for God. It is not. Life as a Christian is not mostly about doing great, epic things for the Lord. It's mostly about knowing Jesus, enjoying Jesus, and then letting him decide where the impact is. And if I open my mouth and I preach and people respond, then amen. And if nobody responds, then I trust you, God. But my job is to follow you, not where the crazy impact is happening. There is so much freedom in embracing that for us. In America, it is so hard to see. We are a working culture, man. We are churning out cogs all day, widgets. That's what we do. We make things. It's the Protestant work ethic. It's the American dream. But it's not God's dream. God's dream is you follow me, regardless of impact. And that is such a hard thing to grasp. I, I, I remember um, it was about seven years ago now, and I got a phone call from my friend Trip Lee. Some of you remember Trip. He came in October here and preached to us. Amazing uh, man of God, uh, super gifted, and uh, just incredibly successful too. 
Uh, he's a, like an award-winning hip-hop artist. He's an author. He's a speaker. Just great. In fact, I went to my mailbox yesterday, pulled out a magazine, and it had his big mug uh, plastered on the cover. So I can't get away from this guy. He's everywhere. And I remember him calling me in, uh, about seven years ago. And this was sort of at the height of Tripp's career. One of his biggest albums had just dropped, and it was doing great. He was on tours with Lecrae and Tadashi and all those guys, and it was just happening for the guy. And that's why I so remember this phone call because it shocked me what he said. He called me in the midst of all that crazy awesomeness. And he just said, hey, man, I'm just uh, wanting to get your counsel on something. I think God's calling me to plant a church and be a pastor. And uh, I think I'm going to do it. But I just, I just wanted to throw that your way and see what you thought. I mean, here is a guy at the height of his career, just killing it. And not even just for his sake would you might want to stay in that. But the gospel is going forth. People are getting saved. There is fruit. Like, it's happening. And he calls me and he says, man, I think I want to pastor a local church. I think I want to plant a local church. What do you think? And I remember uh, I was on the phone with him, and I just said, man, you know how I, I know that this is from the Lord? Because I can't imagine how you get a drop of glory from doing that. That's crazy. I can't imagine why Satan would, would tempt you with pastoring a church of 50 people. I, ooh. Like that just, it's possible, but it's harder to believe than stay in the big and shiny thing that you're doing, right? I love that. That is the heart of a person whose life is bound up on the mission of God. And that's what God's calling us to, that we would be a people who chase Jesus, not just where the biggest impact is. And that ties into the fifth point here, which is this, living on mission demands intimacy with God. It demands it. It, it requires intimacy with God. Two times in the text, we actually see God speak to Philip with instructions. In verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go south on that road. And then in verse 30, we see the, Philip said, uh, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, my point here is not to get in a debate about does God still speak audibly? Do we just hear him in the word? How do we hear God? That's not my point here. My point here is that Philip heard. Or maybe put it a different way, Philip had space to hear. It's not said explicitly, but I think implicitly here in the text, it's just that notion of like, on some level, this guy's life must not have been so cluttered that he couldn't make out the voice of God. And th this moment in scripture really haunts me as a person who's constantly bombarded with life clutter. And I, th I think the challenge for us here is, do we have space to hear that still small voice? Or is every public outing for us got us on our Snapchat feed or Twitter? or Facebook, or YouTube, or looking up the latest stats on ESPN? Or is your home life filled up mostly with Hulu, and Netflix, and busy work, and activities? Or do you have space to sit and hear him? I don't think that you get this type of intimacy with God, with a cluttered life. 
And what's more terrifying for me is that sometimes the clutter doesn't look like silly things like Facebook. Sometimes the clutter can even look like ministry. And that's maybe the more haunting thing for me. That we could be doing, doing, doing so much for God that we actually miss God in the end. What a tragedy that would be. What a tragedy that is for so many who are serving God. You know, Billy Graham's great lament at 92, he was being interviewed on Fox News by somebody in the interview. Interviewer asked him at some point, uh, she said, if you could go back, would you do anything differently? And his answer was this, and this is a quote from him. He said, yes, I would. I would study more, pray more, travel less, take less speaking engagements. I took too many of them. He said, if I had to do it over again, I'd spend more time in meditation and prayer and just telling the Lord how much I love him and adore him and I'm looking forward to the time we're gonna be spending together for eternity. That's Billy Graham. In some ways, one of the greatest evangelists ever, especially in our generation. And he didn't learn that lesson till 92 that you know what's better than serving the Lord? Knowing the Lord. Just knowing him. Let us learn that lesson before 92 today. Let's learn that lesson now. Living on mission demands intimacy with God. Number six, living on mission means leveraging your circumstances. So now we've arrived at the chariot scene, okay? Here we are, and uh, Philip is on his way uh, there, and it says in verse 27, he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. So this very important guy, he had come to Jerusalem to worship, so he was returning home from worshiping God, and uh, verse 28 says, he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah, so he was in scripture at the time. And the spirit said to Philip, go over, join his chariot. Verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And then in verse 32, uh, he reads the passage to us of what the eunuch was reading. And he was in chapter 53 of the prophet Isaiah which is that messianic chapter talking about the future coming of Christ. And verse 34 says this, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I asked, does this prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Verse 35, I love this. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. That is powerful, man. That is, that is powerful. Look what Philip did here. Just watch the movement of the text. Philip came up to this guy and started exactly where this guy was at. He started exactly where he was at. Then he worked to Jesus from there. He listened to his struggle. In this case, his struggle was with a passage of scripture, that Isaiah passage. And then he met that man's need by helping him understand what he is reading. And from that place, that's where he took him 
to the cross. I think there's a lesson here for us, and it's this. So many of us in this room, and I need to be careful how I say this because I don't want to knock what I'm, what I'm uh, critiquing um, per se, but so many of us in this room have, have been trained in evangelism, and we've been trained in methodology We've been trained in approach of how to get from A to B to C. And we've been trained to use these four scriptures from Romans to get them there. And we've been trained and trained and trained. And in some way, that's really helpful. And it has helped probably many of us navigating tricky conversations with the gospel. It's helped us understand the truth of the gospel. But sometimes importing our script into a moment is not what that moment needs that sometimes we need to lean into that moment, believing that the sovereign God of the universe has ordained those circumstances for us to grab hold of and take people from their circumstances to the gospel instead of importing the script. Because sometimes when that import happens, what happens? It can just come off so insincere and robotic. But look at Philip. He met this man in the scripture he was in. Like, he, like, it was not like he was running up by that guy, Jerry, and he's like, yo, uh, what scripture are you reading? I'm reading Isaiah. Turn to Romans. <laughs> Let's go to uh, Romans chapter 3. Uh, it hadn't been written yet, but go there. He didn't do that. He met him in the text, which, as an aside, I think one of the things this means is we need to know our Bibles really well. We need to know our Bibles well. But, but he met him right where he was and led him to the cross. I'll tell you how this, this looks for me on the day-to-day. Uh, for me, it looks like just being really interested in other people. And, and what I mean by that is this. In, if I'm in a conversation with a neighbor or a stranger in, in some circumstance, I'm, I'm always going to want to try to go two or three questions past sort of the normal cordiality. Because I, what I have found in opportunities to preach the gospel is when I go that, that second or third question in, all of a sudden doors open wide. I get to learn about their past experiences. I get to learn about their upbringing. And just, it's like softballs after that being lobbed to me for the gospel. I'll give you an example. When I was, uh, uh, it was like a few months ago, I was at the AT&T store and I was having a guy work on my phone. His name was Jacob. Really like this guy. I see him a lot in there. He's helped me before. And we were sitting down talking. And at some point I asked uh, his name and uh, his last name. And he told me, and it's a Hispanic last name. And so I thought in my, in my head, well, I know um, a lot of Hispanics have a Catholic background. So maybe I'll explore that. So I just went that one question deeper. And I said, oh, that last name, uh, that's, that's interesting. It sounds Hispanic. Do you, uh, did you grow up uh, in the Catholic church at all? I'm curious. And that blew open the doors for like a seven-minute conversation about the gospel where he, he responded, he's like, well, it is Hispanic, but no, I didn't grow up. I actually grew up Lutheran, which is really weird that a Hispanic guy would grow up Lutheran, but I did. And now I'm not practicing Lutheran anymore. I kind of don't really go anywhere. And I said, well, that's interesting because I actually grew up Greek Orthodox, which is also weird like that. And, I, and, and we went and started talking about this. And by the end of it, the guy told me, he's like, man, I'd love to come to church with you sometime. Like, I'd, I'd love to, to see what your church is like. I was like, what just happened? I'm getting my phone fixed. It's amazing, right? It was pushing past question one to question two and question three that just really opened the doors for some really great gospel conversation to happen, entering into his circumstances with his life experiences. That's for me. But my wife has a different approach. 
she wears um, really expensive jewelry, uh, which uh, is weird, but I'll explain. Um, she wears these really pretty necklaces. And when she's at checkout counters or uh, at a grocery store or just around the block, uh, regularly, and I've seen it happen all the time, uh, women will come up to her or comment at the checkout counter, for instance, and, and say, man, that's, I love that necklace. And my wife does this every time. She takes it off. She gives it to him. She goes, here, it's for you. And then their mind is blown. And they don't know what to think. And they're, uh, they're like, what is happening? I'm scared. Do we know each other? What is, uh, and she's like, no, no. But see, my God has been infinitely generous to me and how he has loved me and sent his son to purchase me back from the dead so I get to be with him forever. So if I could extend even a glimpse of that generosity to you, I hope that every time you wear this, you would know that our God wants you and his family too and is willing to be generous to you in that way. And there's these wonderful gospel conversations that happen every time that my wife does that. So it's a really beautiful thing that happens. And it's also very expensive. <laughs> so pray about that before you do it. Or wear cheap stuff. What does it look like for you? I don't know. I don't know what it looks like for you. But, but one thing I do think this means for us is that we would trust God's sovereignty in our interactions with people. And we would trust that the circumstances that are around that interaction the things that they bring up in conversation are all meant for us to help lead them to the cross. I think that's the point here. Living on mission means leveraging your circumstances. And finally, living on mission means remembering it's not your mission. Living on mission means remembering that it is not your mission. Let me ask you a question. Who was it that got Philip up out of Jerusalem down to Samaria where the gospel was heard? Was it Philip? No, it was God sovereignly orchestrating the events of chapter seven that caused the dispersion in Jerusalem that sent out the saints into all the world. Who was it that had him head south on the desert road to Gaza? Was it Philip? No, it was the angel of the Lord that spoke to him saying, head south on that road? Or who was it that got him to chase down the Ethiopian's chariot in the first place? It was the Spirit of God. Do you remember in the text that said, head down and catch up to that chariot? None of these moves were Philip's bright ideas. They were our God's ideas. And it can be really easy to read Bible stories and only see earthly heroes and totally miss the mighty God who is orchestrating all these things behind those people for their good and his glory. And so can we just stop for a moment? I wanna do this, I want us to stop. Let this truth bloom a little bit inside of us. I want you to do something. I want you to think back for a minute on your conversion. And I want you to, to consider the love of God for you. Like think about the millions and millions of little orchestrated moments that your God had to do in order to get you into his family. 
Think about the millions of orchestrated moments that took place to get you, say, maybe into the, the parents that you had, who maybe were the first people to lay the gospel before you. Or think about all of the millions of moments that it took for you to get in front of that friend or in front of those neighbors or in that home group or in this church or in front of that pastor or next to that stranger at Starbucks who maybe shared the love of Jesus with you for the first time. Think about those moments. Think about all of the plotting and the coordinating that took place in the mind and heart of God to get you into his family. Saints, do you feel loved this morning? Do you feel that? The love of God that would, that would literally orchestrate the events of human history to adopt you into his family from the cross to the person who told you about the cross and everything in between and all of time before that. That is the love of God for you this morning. Do you struggle with believing the love of God? Meditate on that this morning. Treasure God because of that this morning. And then stop and think about this. That is the love of God that is being extended to a lost and dying world. That love. God wants those people and is willing to orchestrate human history to get them into his family as well. And he is saying to us this morning, come along with me. This isn't your thing, but this is my thing. And I want you with me rescuing my children. This is not your mission. This is not your ministry. You are not some great evangelist. God is. And he's saying, come along. Come and join me as we reach out as disciples of Jesus into a lost and dying world and invite the lost to know him and become his kids. Let's pray. Father God, that is your love for us and it should just absolutely baffle the minds of your beloved in here that you care for us like that and that you are really the great missional God that whatever love we have for our friends and neighbors probably looks like hate compared to your expansive, massive love for them. Show us that love this morning, God. Show us your big heart for them. And then, God, would you give us your heart for them? Would you please do that this morning? We need you to change us and conform us into the image of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit as we become worshipers of you by seeing you for who you are and telling the lost world about you. God, produce all those good things in us by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.